Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is the Crime Story Podcast with Carrie Ann Tholis, where stories of crime and justice are told. On today's podcast, Chris Taracone reads his story, The People vs. Robert Durst Has a Jury, which you can find in written form at crimestory.com. The People vs. Robert Durst Has a Jury by Chris Taracone. It is 11.30 a.m. on the 27th of February. Twelve people rise together and, in unison, commit themselves for a five-month-long excursion. It will be no vacation, though. They are being taken away from their jobs, their families, and their lives to spend this spring and part of the summer inside the life and mind of Robert Durst. Together in Department 81 of the airport courthouse, they are sworn in by Judge Mark E. Wyndham. They have been chosen after a thorough voir dire to serve on the jury in the trial of Durst for the murder of his longtime friend, Susan Berman, a murder trial sparked by the HBO series The Jinx. The Jinx has been central to the questioning of potential jurors for the past week and, in fact, has been a central focus of the selection process. In the 28-page jury questionnaire completed in January, many potential jurors answered that they had seen the documentary series. That's not surprising in this day and age, and certainly not in West L.A. It's a fact that the defense has to live with. Here's a snapshot of the 12 seated jurors who, despite their varying degrees of exposure to the case, demonstrated to Judge Wyndham, the prosecution, and the defense that they could be completely impartial in evaluating evidence in the coming months. These descriptions are gleaned from courtroom observation and thus are subject to error. Any identifying information that could compromise the juror's anonymity has been withheld. Juror number one. A white female geographic information systems engineer in her mid to late 30s. She didn't know much about the case, but was familiar with the Durst name from the news. Asked about the prospect of reviewing evidence accumulated over many years tending to implicate Durst, she said, It's a lot to unpack. She was called in just yesterday, February 26th, after replacing a dismissed juror. Juror number two. A white male leads software engineer in his early 30s. This charismatic and talkative Midwesterner got to the point quickly when being questioned by the defense and the prosecution. He said that he, quote, just doesn't know enough about the case to be biased, unquote. Juror number two originally stated that he didn't think circumstantial evidence could prove someone guilty, but, like many, changed his mind after Deputy District Attorney John Lewin explained that circumstantial evidence can be just as reliable as direct evidence. He has been in the box since last week. Juror number three, a black middle-aged male. This retired special agent for the Office of Inspector General and the FBI described his work in counterterrorism as well as investigating people who, quote, stole money from the government. 
The defense complimented his fabulous hoodie, commemorating the lives of Kobe and Gianna Bryant. Juror number three felt discomfort serving as a juror due to his past experience of getting the bad guys. But Lewin clarified that a juror's job isn't about getting a bad guy, but determining whether, in fact, Durst was one in this case. Juror number three then said he believed he could do that impartially. Juror number three has many friends in law enforcement, and Lewin also asked if he could view potential law enforcement witnesses as, quote, humans who can be untruthful sometimes. He said he could and would be able to consider their testimony honestly and fairly. Juror number four, an Asian woman who appears to be in her early 30s. She has not seen the jinx, but said she knew a lot about the case based on what colleagues have told her. She believes that Durst probably murdered Morris Black, despite a Texas jury having ruled that he was innocent of murder in that case. Lewis outlined that the jury in Texas found that Durst killed Morris Black in self-defense, and that self-defense is not murder. She understood the distinction and agreed. Lewin discussed with the jury that they are in no way bound to the jury's determination in Galveston and that their responsibility is to evaluate the evidence themselves and come to their own conclusion. Juror number four also expressed concern about Durst's wealth, getting him out of legal situations throughout his life. Juror number five, an Asian-American male who appears to be in his 30s. He works as a financial analyst and was clear and concise in his answers during Vordaire. He said that, in spite of the fact that he has an MBA and a master's degree in math, he does not like to be pigeonholed as a numbers person. Juror 5 talked with Lewin about the fact that his mother suffered from domestic abuse throughout his life, but said he would make no assumptions on information regarding Durst's abuse of his wife, Kathleen. He believes that the criminal justice system is biased towards celebrities and the wealthy, but said this opinion would not lead to bias against Durst. Juror number five lightened the mood of the courtroom with his honesty about the uncomfortable conditions he was in while filling out the long questionnaire with other jurors on a wobbly table. He also shared that, unfamiliar with the Durst case, he originally thought it involved Fred Durst, the lead singer of Limp Bizkit, a mistake several younger jurors made. Juror number six. Juror number six works in management services at a university. A soft-spoken Asian-American male in his mid-30s, this juror didn't know anything about the case before reading the juror questionnaire. A relative of Juror 6 was murdered in 2011, but he said that the pain of the murder doesn't linger in his home, despite a close relationship with the victim. Like most of the jurors, Juror number 6 expressed concern about the dismemberment of Morris Black and stated that he thought it proved Durst was, quote, capable of murder. Still, he said he can keep an open mind in reviewing evidence and will be fair and impartial. Lewin responded during his verdure that, quote, if the evidence at trial matched their preconceived understanding, they were free to then come to the same conclusions of guilt many of them were starting with. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Juror number seven. An Asian woman who was born and raised in the Philippines with shoulder-length brown hair and who appears to be in her mid-40s. Juror number seven works as a nurse at the VA hospital and first entered the box on February 20th, making her one of the earliest jurors. She recounted for the court an incident in which a relative was assassinated in her native country. Like many jurors, she originally discounted the validity of circumstantial evidence. However, after an exchange with Lewin, she came to understand that circumstantial evidence is not automatically any less reliable than direct evidence. Juror number eight, a white female bespectacled poet appearing to be in her 60s, retired from a career at Southern California Gas, and her late husband was a reserve LAPD officer and psychologist. She did not feel her association with LAPD or her understanding of psychology would bias her in any way. Given the choice, she would not serve, but she understands that the United States system of justice relies on juries. When asked whether or not Durst's age and infirmities automatically caused her to believe that he could not have committed the murders involved in the case, juror number eight revealed that an elderly family member had been convicted of molesting family members. Juror number nine. A woman appearing to be in her late 20s. This juror says she found Durst to be a charming psychopath in the jinx and that he came off as a gentle grandpa type. This prompted Lewin to ask her if she had a special affinity for Durst. She replied no, with a laugh, which was joined by Durst and his defense team. Referring to her, quote, charming psychopath comment, she added, I think he's probably more the second part than the first. Drew number 10. A middle-aged, retired white female teacher who lived extensively in Japan. This juror has remained in seat 10 since the beginning of jury selection. She listened intently, and despite a herniated disc that makes sitting uncomfortable, Juror 10 was often seen smiling. Juror number 11. A middle-aged Asian woman, this clinical pharmacist has served as a juror before. She was seated in the box toward the end of jury selection and was not asked many questions. Juror number 12. A woman doctor in her 30s who works as a pathologist. She described herself as patient and said she interprets results carefully. Like some other jurors, she stated on her questionnaire that defendants should not hide behind the Fifth Amendment, and said, if you're being accused of something, wouldn't you want to say something about it? After an exchange with Chip Lewis, she revised her opinion on a defendant's right to remain silent. During Verdeer, each side was allowed 20 challenges. Of those, the prosecution used four, and the defense used nine. The court can strike as many jurors for cause as it deems necessary. Though most hardship requests were weeded out long before voir dire, many potential jurors requested dismissal. They handed notes in a variety of shapes and sizes to the bailiff or the clerk, who in turn delivered them to Judge Wyndham. These potential jurors met with the judge and lawyers in the courtroom or chambers, away from the rest of the jury pool, and spoke at some length about their situations. Some explained complicated work obligations, while others conveyed highly personal experiences with murder, abuse, and other trauma. Others, it would seem, thought they could be excused by being as annoying and contrary as possible. Judge Wyndham listened carefully, questioned thoughtfully, always remained focused on the law. 
He was fair, but no pushover. The note passers, who by and large were well-heeled and seen desperately talking on cell phones during breaks, were an agitated bunch. The rest of the pool and the jurors who were seated today seemed resigned to whatever the court had in store for them and committed to doing their civic duty. As was said repeatedly by Angelinos of every color, age, size, and background in Department 81, quote, I will be fair and impartial. I will carry out the duties and instructions of the judge. An additional 12 alternate jurors will be selected before the trial begins next week. That was The People vs. Robert Durst Has a Jury by Chris Taracone. For more crime and justice storytelling news and narrative analysis, head over to crimestory.com. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next Crime Story podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.